Design Tangents is presented by Genesis, which offers the pinnacle of quality and luxurious comfort. Genesis cars embody both elegance and power with audacious design and groundbreaking technology. From first glance through ownership, your experience will be nothing less than exceptional. Learn more at genesis.com. Stop creating to please people. Try and create for yourself. And that is not something you're brought up on. I want to create something I love. Welcome to Design Tangents, a podcast from Cool Hunting exploring the creative processes and inspirations that drive change makers. I'm Josh Rubin. I'm Evan Ornston. Evan, I'll never forget the first time I went to your apartment back in 1999 and saw that you had an Aurora clock. By that time, I had already suspected that we're destined to be together forever and ever. But seeing that clock helped me understand just a little bit about how having things in common really matters. My grandparents had one, and I'd always lose myself staring into it, watching the hands rotate and watching the colors change. It's funny because when you recognize the Aurora clock and we talked about both of us growing up with one, it was just another part of our journey that really clicked. And for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, the Aurora clock had a moment in the 1970s, particularly in what I like to say Jewish contemporary homes. It has a round cylinder and a round base. So it's kind of like a T-shaped object and it's made out of polished aluminum. It has clear lucite hands and a pair of clear polarized discs that rotate. And as the light passes through from behind, the discs display this constantly changing prism of color. It's really like an orological lava lamp. Um, I think it's three discs, not two discs, right? Because there's one for the hour, one for the minute, one for the second. And that's part of what makes the colors so amazing. Anyway... Correcting, Evan, as I as usual. To yeah. do, yeah. as usual. <laughs> the draw for me is partially that hypnotic effect and partially that it was something new and different that still provided a basic underlying utility of timekeeping. We still have your family's original one, and we also have one of the limited edition auroras in our living room that we made a few years back as part of our Omakase retail program. And for that one, we removed the aluminum case and had it anodized black. The way the color reflects on the interior rim, it just has this beautiful oil slick kind of effect that was unanticipated and makes it even more delightful. The Aurora clock has had a really great journey and uh, was eventually bought by someone and they currently make them still. And you can even get them at the MoMA store now. So as, as part of our show notes, we'll include the link to that. Um, and as well as our limited edition that we made, which I'm thinking we might need to bring back, Josh. More than 10 people in the world need to have one. Yeah, but we need to do something a little bit different with it because those 10 people need to have 10 special things. And maybe they also will want to have this next edition too. Challenge accepted. I started collecting vintage watches, mostly those with LED and LCD movements in them. These were things that I fantasized about as a kid. And we're starting to see more and more of them coming back in, in a certain way. But there was this time when they were just like lost in the, in the watch collector space and, and they were not popular and many of them were thrown out as they broke down because mechanically they were never very good or very stable. And people, I think, eventually just moved on to collecting other kinds of watches. These LED and LCD watches are still super rad, but tech ages quickly. I think about that a lot these days in the car world 
when today's best designs are looked back on as classics? How will their screens, their software, their processors be maintained in the future? Can we still have vintage cars if cars are super high tech? Anyway, that's a that's a tangent for another day. Evan, why don't you tell us and our listeners about today's guest? We're talking with Max Booser, and we've known Max for, I want to say, 15, 16 years. He's been covered in cool hunting so many times. There's also a really great video that we did with him back in 2014 that I think is still very, very relevant today. I encourage you all to have a, have a watch of that. We'll put the link up in the show notes. Max is, is to me, the undisputed renegade of the watch world, and he makes timepieces that are stunning, curious, simultaneously futuristic, but also retro. He, he goes back to his childhood to find these sparks of inspiration that he had as a kid of, of, of wonder, and he's taken those into the workshop and, and created incredible objects of mechanical art that are really, really inspiring. As Max likes to say, no one needs a watch to tell the time, so why not go all in on creating a mechanical piece of art? Welcome to Design Tangents, Max. Evan and I are home here in Beacon, and you moved from Geneva several years ago to Dubai, though MBNF is still based in Geneva. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm here in Geneva. I'm back in the workshops for the two months of summer every year. I've been nine years now living in Dubai. My second daughter was born there. And uh, so my schedule is five days a month in Geneva workshops and July and August full time. And so we're coming at the end of August and I'm still here in Geneva. Seems like a good move to make if it's summer in Dubai. Definitely. If there's one (laughs) moment you don't want to be in Dubai is now. Max, we've known you for a really long time, and you've always been an inspiration to us for for a couple of reasons. One, just as a creator, you do really great things. You're such an inspirational uh, entrepreneur. But I think it's important for people who don't know you or don't who aren't familiar with the Swiss watch industry, which is a very traditionally driven and motivated industry. It is extremely conservative. It is compared to many other industries, very slow moving. Um, it is very difficult to even get a custom watch in some sort. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of pushback to anything that isn't historically based. And yet you have a place in that world which is so outside the orbit of pretty much everyone else and every other company. And we've always found that to be incredibly attractive to us um, at what we do and what we talk about at Cool Hunting. Can you talk a little bit about your transition from working for those more traditional brands and having this burning desire to do something that was not only for yourself and your friends, but to push a system that was so against change? Yeah, it's, it's not a natural in Switzerland and definitely not in the watch industry. Um, MBNF is a life decision. It's not a business decision. And I think that's already a big part of the, the, the answer. Um, I, uh, I used to dream of being a car designer when I was a kid and I did engineering and, and I was incredibly lucky that my first job in, in life was uh, working in a little watch brand, which was little in those days called Jaeger Occult. Now it's a very big watch brand. 
And uh, we were all, the whole industry was virtually bankrupt and we were all grappling, trying to survive in, in a world which didn't want mechanical watches anymore. So watchmaking saved me, gave me a family, gave me a life, gave me a purpose, and I fell crazily in love with it. And I was incredibly lucky to work in this company, which then grew. And then seven years later, I was uh, very lucky to be given uh, the head of Harry Winston timepieces. We're talking of 1998 again. We're talking a very long time ago. And the little watch division of Harry Winston was in a very dire situation. And I was a young 31-year-old and I had to save that company, which also teaches you a lot about yourself. And um, and then we saved it and we turned around and we, we grew, we created the Opus. And I had a lot of success uh, in my Harry Winston days during the, the 2000 to 2005. And I had what most people all want, which is money, recognition, power. And the bigger the company was growing, the less I was enjoying myself. And not only did I not understand it, I felt guilty. Because when you come from a middle-class family like me and you end up in such a prestigious job making so much money, I mean, what sort of an ungrateful bastard are you <laughs> to not enjoy what you're doing? And um, and then a lot of things happen, and I, I'll take the shortcut of my, my dad passing away and me not paying attention to that, and then getting bitten a, few, a year later, realizing that a lot of things had not been said, and going into therapy. And during that therapy, which, by the way, for us Europeans, is not a normal thing to do therapy. <laughs> <laughs> or to talk about it. Yeah, even less, even yeah. less. And, yeah. um, and so to, to realize that life, for me at least, is all about trying not to have regrets. But I've got a lot, I've got really serious, a lot of regrets about my dad and I and all the things we didn't say to each other. And um, so since then, I, I, I turned my life in a very different direction, thinking the most important is that the last day of my life, I'm proud. Whenever it is, if it's in 20 minutes, I hope not in the middle of this podcast, or it's in 30 years, but that I'll have a, a moment when it's time to go and look back and say, you, you try to be the best person ever. You try to abide by your, your values, the values your parents try to give you. And as a creator, you did what you believed in and you didn't, you didn't create stuff because you thought people would buy it. And from that, I started having a fantasy of having my own little company, which would be very small. I didn't want it to grow. It was not, never about money. And I would be free to create what I wanted and free to work with people who share the same values. And one day in 2005, I pushed the button and the rest is history. It's been an amazing history. Did you realize at the same time that no one really needs a watch? We wear watches as if we're wearing art. And if it's art, it could be kinetic sculpture. Did you realize that at the same time that you were making this transition to starting your own company? Was that the point of starting your own company? That was definitely one of the points, is that let, let's consider this art and let's consider this kinetic art. And if it's art, why do 99.9% .9 of watches look more or less the same? I mean, not for us watch geeks, they're all different, but if you take a normal person who doesn't is not crazy about watches and you show them, you could take them to Watches and Wonders, the big trade show, they'll just say they all look the same. And uh, so that was clearly one thing where I wanted to experiment. I think the second part, which is equally as important, 
is stop creating to please people. Try and create for yourself. And that is not something you're brought up on. I mean, if you go to art school, maybe, but I went, I went to engineering. So there was definitely not something I was pushed into. And, and when you get your first paycheck, clearly you're there to help sales. You want to please more people. And at the moment saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to create something I love, but I actually didn't really know what I loved. I had some ideas. I had some, I had some rage. I was very angry in those days. So the anger generates stuff. Um, there was leads of 3D kinetic art. And when I launched the company, I only had the HM1, my very first piece as a drawing and a drawing of HM2, which finally won't end up being HM2. And there I go. And I put all my headings in the company and say, Oh, let's go and do this. And that is, I have no plan, basically. Um, I have people around me who I love and I think love me and who are great artisans. And I've got some crazy ideas and let's try this out. So it's been since then. And if you look at the products we've come out with, the creations we've had over 18 years, I am blown away that I actually had all those ideas. I had no idea that I was going to have all those ideas. And so you open up the floodgates and there's a little trickle of water coming out. And then suddenly it's a little bit more and a little bit more. And creativity, when you create for yourself, I found out is an addiction. And as in all addictions, if you stay at the same dosage, you start feeling numb. And there you need to feel more excitement, more adrenaline, more danger. And that's how these last 20 calibers and 18 calibers are movements, therefore more or less different creations have come about. Whereas if I feel I'm, I'm doing something which is easy and makes sense, I'm like, uh, I'm not very proud of myself. Once you've got a paycheck, you're not going to go and see your boss and say, hey, boss, I've got this incredibly stupid idea which could actually lose a ton of money. But isn't it cool? And that's what I do. Now, 18 years later, success makes you sexy. And now what am I terrified of? I'm terrified of disappointing our fans. Because now we have fans. We have incredible clients who've owned multiples of what we do or love what we do. And they are there at every launch, sitting in front of their computer or their phone or their iPad going, you better amaze me because I love you because you amaze me. So the, the, the scare today as a creator, the scary part is I'm not going to amaze them enough. But I realized that if I feel lukewarm about a product, I don't come out with it. So I'm anyway going to push the envelope because otherwise I don't feel proud. There you go. You've got a really long 360 degree coming to the beginning of the story. There are many watch companies that order parts from vendors and assemble them and have those products. There are other brands that are very proud to make almost every single part themselves in-house, and that's their product and what they stand for. And you started from a place of being an idea generator, a boundary pusher, um, someone really looking to shake things up. And you knew that you couldn't make all those parts yourself. And you couldn't just go to the bin of parts at the watch fair and say, hey, I'd love to buy this movement or this crystal. Because your ideas required things that were not only unavailable, but to many, many people, not possible. 
Exactly. And I, I think I said to you in one of our first interviews, whatever this was, 10 or 15 years ago, I would love nothing more than to be with you when you pitched an idea to one or several of those partners, asking them to make something that you knew was possible, but barely, and that it would take a lot of time and probably be stupid expensive, but you wanted to do it because it was possible. I think I want to do it because nobody told me it was impossible. I think that's the way we see it. Um, it's, there, there is a point where, anyway, I have ideas. Actually, if I have two assets in my life, is one of having weird ideas, which was very tough for me as a kid, because I was the, the, the dork, the geek, the, the lonely one, or I was programming my Commodore 64 when everybody was chasing whoever they were chasing. And, mm-hmm. um, and at the end of the day, the second asset I found is, um, I, I realize, I don't know how I do this. I manage to gather around me extraordinary people who, who feel as invested as I am in, in the mission we've created. And I am actually, when I look at all these American films where you have got the baseball coach who's going in and telling his team or whatever coach and everybody's like, yeah, that's so incredible. And the speeches they do, I am totally incapable of doing that. I cannot do a speech if my life depended on it to my team. Uh, but for whatever reason, I can manage to convey that this is, I find this is an incredible story and they feel the same way and they follow. So that, those are the friends. And the team is, of course, the people in the team today, I was all alone at the beginning, is all the artisans around us, but it's also um, six retailers 18 years ago were crazy enough to pay me a bit of money in advance looking at my drawing, my first drawing, which was pretty radical in itself. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the customers. The customers who went absolutely batshit crazy to buy one of my first pieces, and today I recognize that on the moment you're just in such a survival mode that you don't you don't even it's not that you don't feel grateful. You're like every sale is like wow, finally. Right. But now looking back, and now with the success being there, you realize how those people were so precious. They were so extraordinary, and without them, I'm not talking to you today. So the friends right. concept was that going forward, co- going to see the artisans with our ideas initially was incredibly complicated. They were all looking at us going, or me initially going, how are we going to do this? It's not possible. It's going to take thousands of dollars. We're going to break too many tools. We're going to break this. We're going to break that. And they tried. For those who did, they tried. And it became an addiction for them also. And that was incredible. Is that, that now, over the last eight, 10 years, when we go and see them, most of them we still work with, they're like, okay, what's up? What, what are you going to come up with? What's next? Now, they know that with us, we're going to ask for very small quantities, incredibly high quality, absolutely insane R&D. Clearly, they're not going to make their living with us. But what am I giving them? I realize they're way later. The same pride I get. And they right. show everybody, look what I can do. <laughs> yeah, I do all that for brand X, Y, and Z, but I make a ton of money. But look what I do with MBNF. And I can do this. They push me to do that. I'm capable of doing that. You you talked about gathering extraordinary people around you, and you talked about being weird as a kid. It sounds like you, Josh. Yes. I mean, I, I relate. But Max, I'm wondering if you know whether those extraordinary people that you've gathered were also weird as kids. 
That's a really interesting. I haven't, I haven't even thought of that. And I think also what I discovered is that being very lonely as a kid, for me, it was just like this dream of being able to be surrounded with people. And it's only way later that I understood why I called the brand and friends. And that's also the other thing. Normal people do not have people like you asking them questions. I am blessed with the fact of having to answer interviews where people ask me on the rationale of what I do and why I do it and what am I going to do. And that actually is, is like a therapy and it helps me a lot. Uh, it's, it's an incredible uh, blessing for me. I think it's good timing to jump to a short break. When we come back, I kind of want to dig into some of these early influences. Hi, Surround listeners. It's me, Amanda Schneider, host of Design Nerds Anonymous. And I've got exciting news to share. Another mini-series of DNA is on the way. With the help of my fellow podcaster, Kaylin Reed from the Alternative Design Podcast with Kimball International, we'll be sharing nuanced insights from recent research conducted across four vertical markets, corporate, education, healthcare, and hospitality. Think of this as your prequel to season six launching this fall. Our topic is the future of customer decision-making. We're hearing that project decisions around the built environment are taking longer, and we wanted to know why. So we explored with your customers, and we're very excited to share the results with you. Dropping before Neocon to give you updated data, better tools, and new questions to drive conversation. We're here to facilitate dialogue that helps our industry and beyond streamline that decision-making. So make sure to follow Design Nerds Anonymous, subscribe, and then tune in on May 16th for the first episode in this four-part series. All right, bye for now. We're back from the break. Um, Josh, I would love for you to text Max right now the picture we were looking at yesterday that your dad sent. Um, it's my favorite picture of you as a kid because I think Max will really relate to it. And it helps put stuff together. I think one of the things that's interesting, Max, is we, we Josh and I came from a pretty, I want to say traditional business because we were working in the what was the beginnings of the web. And we had this opportunity. We didn't even know it. And we didn't start quanting as a, as a business. It, it started literally as, a, as a, an archive of design research. And over time, we realized there was an opportunity and uh, we transformed the business and continue to reinvented constantly. And around the same time, you were going through the same kind of, what am I doing with my life? How do I fulfill myself? How do I express my creativity? And how can I shake things up a bit? It's probably due to Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism? Zoroastrianism, you said. My mom, she was a Parsi, an Indian Parsi, basically. They abide in a religion called Zoroastrianism which is the oldest monotheistic religion in the world before Christians, before the Jewish religion comes. Um, they believe in Zarathustra as the prophet and Aura Mazda as the god. And um, they abide by very simple thoughts or practices. It's not about do not do this, which we are very much used to. It's about good thoughts, good words, good deeds. I'm sure you saw the biopic of Freddie Mercury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
His mom yeah, yeah. tells him, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Freddie Mercury was a Parsi also. One of the, there are 120,000 Zoroastrians uh, left in the world. And um, so that's pretty unique. And my mom was the epitome of that. She was like the kindest soul ever. Uh, I remember asking her, she was this 80-year-old little lady at that point, saying, I've never heard you, mom or dad, ever say something snarky or ironic or nasty about somebody. And she just looked at me and she said, why would we? So I was brought up by these parents who kept on telling me, treat people the way you want to be treated. Well, if I'm going to create a brand which works with people who are going to bring all this incredible value to it, of course I'm going to credit them. Because if I was them, I would like the brand to credit me. And this is what I've been doing over all these years, putting myself in the shoes of clients, retail partners, team, suppliers, artisans, etc. Uh, and thinking, if I were them, what would I like? Which doesn't mean that I transgress my creative process. I don't care if people like what I do. That's the only way I can create. Otherwise, I don't create a, a watch which looks like a bulldog or looks like a spaceship or a, a lady's watch, which is two centimeters high, uh, and or et cetera, et cetera, all the different things we've done, or a clock which looks like a T-Rex, or whatever you want. Uh, there's no way I, I create going, oh yeah, of course, there are thousands of people out there going to like it. So, But on the other hand, once you, 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 you buy one of our pieces, or you like one of our pieces, I think we're, we're really cool people to, to hang out with. <laughs> That's how we work. There are many influences, I think, in your work, but two of them come from things that both Josh and I can relate to, and that's growing up a love of cars and a love of sci-fi. Can you tell us a little bit about how have you taken those things that inspired you as a kid and, and brought them into your work today? From the age of four to the age of 18, I was drawing all the time. I dreamt of being a car designer. And I realized also not so far back that it was probably because my dad was a very he was another generation. He never, my dad, unfortunately, never did anything with me. Rarely spoke to me. Never told me he was proud or that he loved me. He was of that generation, and um, and so I noticed very young that he was interested in cars, and so I think un unconsciously I started getting passionate about it. And the only thing my dad ever did with me in my whole life was take me to the car show, and when I was a kid. That moment was bliss. I don't think he ever realized how important it was for me that we would go and visit the car show together. And from there onwards, it, it was part of my life. So when I launched MBNF, I started creating my first idea was not to create a, a car related watch. But at some point, five, six years down the road, I tackled that. And it was very daunting because when it's your second passion in life and you really want to get it right, uh, and uh, and I created what was going to be called the Horological Machine Number no. Five, which uh, was very inspired by the Lamborghini Miura. It was uh, this crazy driver's watch with heads-up display with mirrors and nothing which looked like a watch, by the way. And um, it was a total flop. It didn't sell at all. And so we we announced three times sixty-six pieces, and we barely we didn't even manufacture all of them because nobody wanted them, and they stayed in stores for forever. And even today, I mean, our, our brand has got now this, a lot of demand, much higher than we can produce. So the secondhand market is really strong, but that watch still goes forward. <laughs> Nobody wants that watch. 
but it's my favorite. It's uh, it's always yeah. been one of my favorites. <laughs> I, yeah, I really adore that one too. That's funny. But that's interesting because I and thank you. But you know why it's interesting is that I don't regret that watch at all because the purpose was never to please people and to sell it. The purpose was to create it. And there's a follow up to that. From HM5, we had, therefore, we did HMX and then HM8. And now we've just come out with HM8 Mark II, where the waiting lists are like five to 10 years and everybody's going bananas on it. And that product wouldn't exist if I hadn't in 2012 come out with that. But there's, a, there's another situation which is pretty funny is that in 2017 in Dubai Watch Week, I bump into Fabrizio Buonamassa, who is the head designer of Bulgari, an insanely talented man. And I'm a big fan of what he does. I go up to him and introduce myself. He says, oh, I know what you do, and we're going to have a coffee. And during that coffee, Fabrizio says, Ah, Mark, the horological machine number five. I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> and we should do something with Bulgari or with the HM5, because he used to be a car designer. And, and he starts sketching an HM5 with Bulgari identity. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is so cool. We should do this. And we didn't, but we came out with a flying tee with Bulgari four years later, because that coffee, when I met Fabrizio, he loved that piece. So if you're proud of something, it's never a flop. Mm, I love that. Do you consider your timepieces luxury items? They check a lot of boxes for what might define luxury. They're complicated. They're handmade. The materials are top-notch. The storytelling that comes along with it is really important, and they're expensive. The word luxury is is a, is a bit of a trigger for me. Uh, I, I really have a problem with that word because there's a first world luxury, there's a third world luxury for, from billion people in the world today. Finding something to eat is a luxury. And, I, and expensive stuff cannot be a luxury. So I, I, I never put that word anywhere in, in anything I've written or said. But what it is, it's an incredible work of art. It's an incredible work of artisanship. There have been thousands of hours, years of R&D, uh, years to, to craft the pieces, to hand finish them. We're, we're one of the last companies which still hand finishes all the components, which most of the other brands have gone industrial, which is very well done, by the way. But I, we still work by hand and it's pointless. Again, it's, would you do that when a machine can do it as well? But that's not the point. The point is it's about the celebration of human artisanship. So as such, because it's pointless, of course, it's a luxury. But putting this thing that it's expensive, therefore it's luxury, because for, depends for, for who. And, and I'll admit that for uh, up till very, very, very recently, I couldn't afford my own pieces. And that's why, for example, you may have heard of this Mad One watch we came out with two, three years ago, uh, which is around $2,900, $3,000, when our average price of MBNF is, uh, is around $150,000. Uh, that was also because I was completely fulfilled as a creator. I was creating these extraordinary works of art. We're, we're crafting 10, 20, 30 a year of each. And, um, but unfortunately, nobody of my family, nobody of my childhood friends, nobody of my, my friends de facto could afford anything I created. And so what's the point of doing all of this if the people you love 
can't wear what you've created. So and therefore, I, I created the Mad One. Actually, it's interesting. I created the Mad One in 2014, engineered it in 2014, and it took mm-hmm. me seven years to have the courage to come out with it. Because, of course, a super artisan niche brand like us doesn't come out with a product like the Mad One. It's suicide. And we right. still did it. There And there again, I'm proud because we took it in, in risk and, uh, and it, it worked out. So... Um, Let's forget the word luxury. Just it's, it's a dirty word for me. <laughs> in the beginning, you talked about how the company will survive you, and you talked about legacy. And the stories that you're sharing now are so much that legacy, the opportunities that you've created, the work that has inspired so many others, is the legacy to me. I'd love to dig into this further right after our break. This is Amy Devers, host of Clever. My podcast brings you conversations you're not going to hear anywhere else with the visionaries and creative forces who shape our world and culture. It's a compelling mix of raw candor and honest shop talk that reveals the humanity behind the design of the world around us. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Head over to surroundpodcast.com or follow Clever wherever you get your podcasts. The notion of, of legacies is now something in my life. Uh, when I created the brand, it clearly wasn't. When I was in the first 10 years of survival mode, nope. Um, when I started having year 10 to 15, a little bit more, I would say uh, it was a little bit easier, it still wasn't there. And it's only crept up in the last three years. Like I'm 56. In three and a half years, I'm going to be 60. So I announced that in 2027, just to say enough, I'm stopping MBNF and you've got three and a half years to buy the watches and then it's finished. That would be so cool. That would be incredibly cool. But no, I've got 50 people in my team. I've got all the artisans who, who work on the pieces, the retail partners, and of course, over a thousand clients around the world today who own an MBNF or multiple pieces. And you can't just say, hey guys, that's it. If you have any problem in the after-sales service, well, deal with it. So there is a moral responsibility that this continues if something happens to me. And I've been struggling with that. Uh, how do I make this happen? You know, I hate these CEOs who leave the company and the company falls apart. They say, look how good I was. Now the company's gone, fallen apart. No, you were absolutely useless because if you were good when you've left, the company should thrive even more. And, and that's the way I think now. And so, uh, in this case, I've basically more and more taken a, a step back and I am just the creative director, which is quite a big role still in a very creative company. And, um, but we've, um, we've got so many pieces in the pipeline, so many creations. I think we're up to 2031, something like that, uh, which gives a little bit of, we've got like eight years in front of us. And um, I'm working with a, a young, very talented designer to um, one day, I hope, could, uh, could take over, uh, either because I'm not there anymore or because one day maybe I want to take a step back on that also. That's, talk about luxury. That's a luxury to have the possibility of taking a step back. And, um, and so, uh, so we're working with that. And, um, and that's another whole other... Um, journey is uh mentoring 
and I am enjoying this. So Max, if you had to imagine of all the timepieces that you've designed, one that might look or feel or be a reminder of Cool Hunting or Evan and Me, which one aligns? That's a tough one. I'm going to say, also because I've got all the designs on the wall in front of me, um, the HM10 Bulldog. I, I, I designed a watch in actually the first drawing, I have it in front of my eyes, of 2012, which is the idea of a watch which is based on a dog. Mm-hmm. And their, their jaws, which open and close, which are the power reserve indicator, their eyes, and it's the brain and everything. And, and I think you're dog lovers. So clearly that, that's, a, that's a no-brainer. But also, you guys have been discovering and finding some of the most amazing minds around the planet. And uh, I, I think you deserve something exceptional on your wrist and not something vanilla ice cream. There's a sign in the background that I keep seeing. We're doing this through screens and you're in your office and Evan and I are in our office and behind you are several books and some sculptures and this sign that says, think like an artist, don't act like one. (laughs) How do you think like an artist and don't act like one? Or is that a a message that you want everyone else to read like us? It's a a reminder to everybody um, in, in the team. And um, it's also a reminder for me, uh, maybe it's a cliche. You've got this cliche of the artist who um, has no responsibility. And so just do whatever you want, whenever you want sort of thing. But when you're a company, which is an artistic company based on engineering like ours, where it takes four years to develop a movement and 18 months to manufacture one and hand finish it, and that you've got a you've got a responsibility that they work over the hundreds of years to come. There, um, there is the part of think freely, but act responsibly. Does that idea transcend time, or looking into the future, does that change? Does that shift? Well, if my life goes the way I would like it to go, I will less and less have to act like, uh, less and less be responsible. Where I can. Um, I can basically be more and more just free thinking and not have all the responsibilities. But I've had a very Calvinistic upbringing. And uh, there is, um, there's, a, there's a thing in me that um, pride only comes with effort. Uh, I'm not going to say with suffering, but at least mm-hmm. with effort. And um, I don't think I will ever be able to let go of the fact that I need it to be difficult so that I actually am proud of it. I'm working on it. Not there yet. We were talking earlier about, in the 90s, the struggle that the watch industry was going through. And obviously, it took some time, but the industry recovered and arguably is doing better than it ever has today. But what's its future? Where do you, do you ever think about 10, 20, 30 years out, what the, you know, five, Swiss watchmaking world might look like? Hmm. I, I actually don't know. I'm a little bit concerned, if I can put it this way. I think um, it's an industry which built itself on beauty, craftsmanship, uh, exclusivity, meaning rare, and um, it's become a massive mega business. And as such, there is the danger of losing your fundamentals. Uh, I think um, 
it's a little dangerous that a majority of the people who buy high-end watches buy them not because they love high-end, but they love watchmaking or that they appreciate it, but because they want to have status. And when you start building an industry on status and that the customers who are buying your products don't actually understand the complexity, it opens gateways to things which could turn ugly. Well said. Earlier when we were talking about weird kids, I texted you a photo. And I'm wondering if you saw that. I'm, I'm glad your your phone has been off for, for this conversation. <laughs> I and put it off, I'm sorry. And you have it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I figured as much. But I just wanted to circle back. Ha! You were the coolest kid on the blog. Mm. You're the exact opposite polarization to what I was. That was not, that was weird. Like uh, the other kids thought it was very weird. So, so you must have been as solitary as I was but in, in a very different way. Perhaps. For all of our listeners, we'll put these photos up. But uh, that photo, I believe, Josh, was <laughs> you on your way to a Madonna concert? Yeah, the two photos, the first one that, <laughs> that Max just responded to was, yes, I was going to see Madonna. I think it was eight or nine years old. And um, I would dress the way that I wanted to dress every day, but didn't feel comfortable dressing that way but thought i could get away with it for a concert the second photo is my grandfather myself and my inflatable robot and okay. i kind of feel like i kind of feel like this is a perfect summary of me because i'm wearing a matching fila outfit so you know a little bit concerned about fashion but really what i'm most excited about is this inflatable robot that was you know this was when you had a remote control with one button that went forward and the other button went reverse and turned at the same time. So you had to navigate things by going forward in a straight line or reverse in a curvy line. And uh, I think that also maybe offered some life lessons that are only starting to settle in now. <laughs> so I'm going to set a little challenge for us, which is maybe in seven or eight years, we'll see some kind of robot that also tells time. You may not have to wait so far. Mm. Max, you are, are, you've been a great friend, and a, as we said in the beginning, someone who's always really inspired us, and we're really grateful that you took time out of a very crazy schedule to sit down and, and share a little bit about your life. Thank you, guys. It's been great, honestly. Uh, and I, I knew I would learn a lot also with the questions you asked, so thank you again. Thank you so much. Josh, that was so great catching up with Max, and I'm really grateful that he was able to join us today. He always inspires, and every time we talk to him, I learn something new or something different. He's a bit of a hero. Question for our audience, do you have a timepiece that you love? If you do, post it on Instagram and tag us on the Design Tangents Instagram at designtangents.pod. And we'll be sure to repost them. If we like them, we'll repost them. But I don't want to make promises. Rob, let's leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please follow us and give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode is produced by Samantha Sager and Rob Schulte at the Surround Podcast Network by Sandow Design Group. To discover more design-related shows, visit surroundpodcasts.com. 
podcastwithanss.com. That's podcast with an S to see all the other great shows in the lineup. We'd like to thank Genesis for their ongoing support in presenting Design Tangents. Discover more about Genesis at Genesis.com.